and welcome to the Write for Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading, and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for February has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are lovely jubbly. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E fly, and do let them know that you heard all about them here on 5x5. I'm Donna Sorensen. And I'm Ian Broom. And it's a lovey-dovey week. It's um, my least favourite of all the all the festivals of the year. I'm not even sure it really is a festival. You can't even call it a festival. It's just a, a card company concoction, isn't it? You know what we're talking about, of course. It, it's a festival of capitalism. <laughs> Do you celebrate Valentine's Day? Ian? Um, I, I, I can, I can never wait until Valentine's Day. Um, I'm all for it. Oh. Splendid. Well, at least one of us is. That's my, that's my official answer. I'm um, more hung up by the fact that it's Friday the thirteenth tomorrow. I hadn't even realised. Well, I suppose I, if I'd have thought about it, I would have realised, but I hadn't. Um, oh, you, do you get spooked easily? No, I'm just kidding. I really don't. None of this matters to me at all. What's your uh, policy on um, horror films? Um, ooh, I can cope with horror. I don't like torture. <laughs> uh, I mean that in a serious way. I, uh, films like splatter films and films like Seven, for example, the most horrific film I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I'm scarred for life from it. Horrific as in not very good or horrific as in, um, uh, you know, kind of... Traumatic. So Traumatic. Well, didn't you find? Because I mean, didn't you find uh, True Detective, which we talked about last week or maybe the week before? Didn't you find that quite traumatic, perhaps in a similar sort of way? I did, but it's weird that it didn't impact on me in the same way. I think maybe because I went into it, you know, you can break it up and you can go back to it and, and kind of digest it over a longer period of time. Whereas with a film, something like Seven, it's just so much horrific stuff in in such a short space of time. I don't know. Maybe that's why. Hang on a minute. How are we talking about horror and torture instead of Valentine's lovey-dovey stuff? I, I honestly don't know how it happened. <laughs> um, yes, well, we have a couple of things that we'd like to talk about this week. I mean, are they related really to Valentine's Day? It's a very loose link that we have here. Um, I have found a lovely, lovely article that I wanted to discuss called My Dad, the Pornographer, from the New York Times. It sounds absolutely ideal. <laughs> ideal Valentine's Day, yes. Well, why not? Um, but it is very much related to writing because this is a, a great piece um, after the passing of um, of a writer, a guy who's been writing well, writing his entire life. His name is Andy Offutt from the USA. Um, and he was an, an insanely prolific porn pioneer. And he wrote 400 books. Um, and the, do, you, um, do, you know what, do you know what his... Um his dad's name was no what was his dad's name uh come <laughs> that's such an english uh, from england joke is it is it it's very very english come off it that means you're having a laugh doesn't it sorry that i did that was probably a bit too british i think we i think that's probably british sense of humor overload <laughs> anyway back to the the important stuff the uh the pornography writing um 
I just wanted to, to chat about this because reading about this guy's life, his, his writing technique, I thought was absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I don't know whether there are other writers that have, have approached writing like this, but it's a very, very loving article in the New York Times. His son explains that, um, you know, he'd written science fiction and fantasy novels, his father, uh, before, but um, that his, uh, his son's orthodontic requirements meant that they needed more money. So uh, the dad... Andy offered and his mum teamed together to make this incredibly efficient um, porn novel machine where he would be writing a book a month and uh, his wife would be typing them up for him while he was already starting the next one. So they were like double teaming it, basically. Hey. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I it, it was absolutely fascinating. So in order to be able to produce a novel a month, which he did over many, many years, um, he would have these enormous ring binders where he'd already prepared writing phrases, sentences, descriptions, and sometimes like entire scenes on pages and pages of, of um, documents kept in ring binders with subheadings, tabbed index dividers. And so he could just go and find like uh, something. It was amazing. You know, there'd be subheadings like orgasm, um, and, and he could go and he could just say, pick out bits to write into the novel and then he would just black them out so that he didn't plagiarise himself. Isn't that amazingly efficient? Incredibly efficient. He was he was effectively, he'd created a system of writing novels that doesn't sound um, too unlike the robot system that you talked about in a previous episode of this podcast where at some point a robot will be able to piece together and write, maybe even publish themselves, self-publish, a self-publishing robot. Basically, in terms of like how he planned it, um, he wrote a longhand first chapter and then he just banged the rest out, <laughs> made some changes and then passed the draft to his wife who would retype it for submission. I have to say, on behalf of uh, everyone listening to you talk, it's very, very difficult to tell which parts of your sentences are kind of... Uh, intended double entendres and which parts are just you know uh, the truth with me you should just assume that they are all intended i think that's the easiest way <laughs> the intended entendres yes exactly um so there's some lovely lovely quotes in this just because i mean he was an embarrassment to his children he was is that i, I read this and it did seem a, a very i mean imagine imagine growing up and your dad says uh says well, i'm just off to work and then and you say all oh, right okay where were you where are you going? What are you doing? And he says, I'm a builder. I am <laughs> going to build something. And then years later, you think, maybe he wasn't a builder. And then you find some papers. And on those papers, there are headings. And those headings, they're upsetting those headings. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I know he was a writer. He'd written like over 20 books that were not related to porn at all. I mean, you know, that's pretty, to start with, that's pretty prolific, right? So it's just fascinating that the output here, I mean, you know, with one publisher, like, actually, he's self-published at the end, 200, over 200 books. Yeah, I mean, just amazing to be able to um, to kind of just write a load of paragraphs, admittedly sexy paragraphs, which perhaps does make it slightly easier because there's only, well, maybe there aren't. I was going to say there are only so many ways you can describe what is essentially the same series of acts. Um <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's not very romantic. I know. Well, Surely you know, there are a, a million ways to describe. 
all of these things. Well, exactly. And he's kind of, uh, he's created all these different sexy pieces and he's created himself a giant, sexy, erotic, literary jigsaw. He absolutely has. Um, some other fascinating things that came out of this article that I wanted to share was the idea of a house name for a publishing company. I'd never even heard of that. Do you know about that? No, tell us more. So apparently a house name is a pseudonym shared by several writers that would conceal the identity of the writer, which a lot of writers preferred if they were writing porn, but also allowed the publisher to give the illusion of a single prolific author. It was apparently like the the first attempts at branding kind of uh, small publishing houses. I think that's fascinating. And I can totally see it. You know, it could be with anything, any genre, Western or or sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, it's actually that's actually uh, um, the idea of clubbing together. Of course, is is uh, it's more it's more prevalent than ever, um, and and because of self publishing, so lots of uh, independent authors they all sort of you know say you know you scratch my back, how's your father? I'll uh, I'll run the distance, and they work together. And then they say, what were we talking about back then when we made that deal? And they say, I have no idea, but it's gone really well because now we're selling more books. Yeah, exactly. Um, And the last thing I wanted to share from this was that, um, uh, yeah, he used a lot of uh, pen names, 17 actually in the start, um, and some of them were these house names. Were they rude pen names? No, they were, I I mean, he'd he'd put a lot of thought into them. He'd used like... He brought all sorts of things into how he chose it. But basically, he developed this alter ego called John Cleave, who he used to write a large chunk of these books. Um, And what I thought was really interesting was that um, his son said, Dad was adamant that he did not have 17 pen names. Dad had John Cleave, to whom he referred in the third person. It was John Cleave who had 16 pseudonyms, in addition to his own wardrobe, stationery and signature. I mean, that sounds fishy to me. I'd be, if I was him, I'd be checking my dad's uh, internet history. <laughs> well, but I mean, come on, this guy was like, was constantly writing pornography. I mean, you, I can totally imagine that you want to project it onto another character because you would just, you'd just lose yourself in it, wouldn't you? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about something a little more romantic? As if that wasn't romantic enough. <laughs> um Another thing I saw this week, which was quite an interesting idea, was um, via an article on Book Riot about, oh, entitled actually, What Does Your Favourite Book Say About You? Um, and it was the idea that you could go along to a bookshop and you could bring your favourite book to exchange with other people and it might be a good way to meet people. Do you think that's a nice idea? Yeah, that sounds nice. And again, there are, this seems to be something that's really taking off the idea of um, you know, leaving books in places, so not necessarily exchanging them directly, but kind of taking your favourite book and leaving it on a train for someone else to pick up and move on. Maybe leave a note in it or something like that, or setting up a uh, a tiny little tiny library, which is basically like a big bird box with some books in, just sticking it in your front garden so people can walk past and they can just borrow a book and maybe they'll bring it back, or maybe they're thieves. Um, but uh, but either way, you know the the idea of sharing books and um, I don't know maybe even maybe even using books as a kind of I mean people have always done this but as a as a part of your identity in order to explain who you are. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's what really comes out of this article. If you're going to go and do that, I mean, there's one thing leaving books or exchanging books, places where you're not actually going to stand next to the book and introduce yourself and say, hello, this is my favourite book. But to actually do that, I mean, I think I would really start to put a lot of thought into it because what what would you take along if you were going to go and introduce yourself and swap your favourite book? What would you take? Have you thought, I mean, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. I've not really considered mine, but off the top of your head, what do you think you'd take? I don't think I can, I don't think I can come up with something um, immediately. I don't know if, I don't even know if I have a favourite book. You don't? You really don't? That is, that's, that's staggering. Surely you've got like a top three you can, you can always go back to. Well, I mean, the, the, I don't think I've ever reread a novel in my life. No, when I said when I said go back to, I meant like if someone says to you, "What's your favourite book? Tell me now," then you can just mentally go back to that top three. Maybe, but again, I think this is part of the problem of having done an English degree. So a lot of the books that I read in my kind of formative years was uh, was part of a degree. So and where the you don't, I was I was supposed to be reading um, you know two or three novels a week, and when you're kind of doing it, becomes a more of a job rather than enjoying it. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. There are some. I don't know. I, I'm, in my head, I keep thinking Life of Pi, but I don't really. I, I that that ending upset me a lot. So I don't know if I can really count that. But um, but I do, I, I do remember reading that. But then maybe that's because I was reading it on holiday in a specific location, <laughs> and that's what I remember. Yeah, absolutely. That really helps. That might actually have effect. Oh, you see, you've just made me think of something. That, that might be the reason why. Catch Twenty Two is my favourite book. Did you read it in a, when you were in either on holiday or in a situation where just whatever you did, it didn't seem like the the, uh, the outcome was going to be particularly favourable? Well, actually, the exact opposite. I read it when I was travelling around China and had fallen deeply in love for the first time ever, and I was travelling madly with the person I just met there, and I was in love and I was happy. It's going to help. Very Valentine's Day. It is very Valentine's Day. Now I've got to go back and reread it immediately to see whether it was just all an illusion. I mean, the books that I've been back to most in the last 18 months, uh, I've talked about them before, but it's Austin Kleon's two books. Um, uh, Show Your Work is his, most, is his most recent book, and Still Like an Artist is the one before. But that's in part because they're short. I can literally read the entire thing in about 25 minutes. Um, but just the advice in that just really, in really sort of it's what I've needed um, on a regular basis mm. re- recently. Yeah. Not very romantic uh, selection, though, really, if you were going to go along and try to bag someone on Valentine's Day at a book exchange. That's true. That's true. Luckily, you I don't have, have to worry about that, though, do you? Yeah, that, that wasn't in my plans. <laughs> um, right, Ian, would you like to pose a podcaster's question? For our listeners, because we, we did actually do a podcaster's question last week, and it was fantastic that people shared books they'd um, studied at school with us on the WFYL hashtag on Twitter. So thank you, everyone that did. What would you like to ask this week, Ian? This week, I would like to ask on the podcaster's question section of this podcast. Um, um, well, I'd like to ask everyone's opinion on something. Um, shall we shall we make an announcement while we're at it? Well, it sounds like we have to now. Although I'm Does not sure that I'm I'm okay with it. <laughs> go on, go on, do it. 
Well, we our last our last um, uh, episode of Right for Your Life um, before you um, have a child is, I think, the way that people say it yeah. um, is going to be the twenty sixth of March, I believe. That's correct. Which so is a, fast approaching. Yeah, so there's about eight weeks left before you go on maternity leave, and that's assuming uh, the little nip nops doesn't come. Uh, a little earlier than that, but let's hope not. And you know, we'll see. But the twenty six, so that's detail, extra detail. You don't need that detail. <laughs> go on, keep um, going, keep going. Um, so, so we've yeah. So we we we're obviously going to be uh, well, not obviously. This, that's the announcement. We're going to take a little break for that period, and um, and uh, and we wondered what you wanted us to do when we came back. <laughs> that's basically Don't the question. Don't bother coming back. That's one option. But we hope you don't say that, of course, everybody. No, but we very much appreciate, um, uh, especially uh, you listeners who, who listen on a very regular basis, those people who listen um, weekly. I mean, we appreciate everyone, but um, I think it's fair to say that the podcast has changed and, and grown and, and taken on different shades, not of grey, um, in the last uh, oh. year to eight. Well, don't forget well, that in there, around Valentine's, Valentine's Day, yeah. Um. And and uh, and so we we kind of wondered which bits of the podcast you like best, um, and and which you would like more of, and that type of thing. So you know, I haven't really thought about these categories, but let's think. Um, we do listeners' questions. Um, we do um, uh, sometimes we focus on a specific writing topic. Mm-hmm. Quite a lot of the time these days, we we sort of pick a news article out, or or even a blog post, and we talk around it. Nonsense sometimes chats. Nonsense and chats are are more and more frequent. So, are they irritating? I can imagine they might be to some people. Oh, no. <laughs> or, or, well, Not maybe delightful. maybe they're not. like you know. I mean, they might be. But we want to know. That's the main thing. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Um, so yeah. So obviously, we're going to have a little break while Donna has a baby, and um, it'd be great if you could give us some feedback on how you might like the show to shape up from uh, then onwards. Um, so to do that, you can get in touch with us. You can email me, ian at rightforyourlife.net or hello at ianbroom.com. Both work, go to the same place. Um, or you can speak to us both on Twitter at the Flying Poet uh, or at Ian Broom. And can people email you? Do they do you give them permission to do that? Yeah, yeah, to go for it. Actually, people have, uh, found my, have emailed me via my website as well, which has been lovely. That's Donna Sorensen Poetry. Yeah. So just uh, get in touch, let us know which bits of the show you like, how you might want to shape the show um, in future. And that's it. That's the podcaster's question. But this week uh, I saw an interesting piece about the demise of the novel as uh, inspiration for screenwriters, which I'd never really thought about before. Have you ever attempted any screenwriting? Um, I've, I did write a script as part of my creative writing degree, or the third of it that was creative writing. Mm. Um, I don't even think I can remember what it was about. No. So not, so not recently, but it's something that I would like to do and I have, a, I have an idea for it. I just haven't quite got around to doing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really interesting area and, um, uh, this piece here was about best adapted screenplay, about the fact that like fewer and fewer nominations for best adapted screenplay are coming from novels. That people, it seems to be much much easier to turn to memoirs and real life stories, investigative journalism and things like that, um, than to actually dip into fiction to to produce film, which I thought was fascinating. 
So non-fiction stories are, or kind of non-fiction recounts of uh, kind of real-life events are, are more uh, are more filmable than fiction at the moment. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. So, for example, last year, um, 12 Years a Slave won, and that was an adaptation of uh, Solomon North's memoir. Yeah. Um, do you know which... Um, actually, if I was to tell you that there's one nomination this year which comes from a, a novel for Best Adapted Screenplay, you probably wouldn't even be able to tell me what it was, would you? Oh, gosh. I, I'm not even sure I could tell you which films were nominated. Um, apart from Boyhood, which is amazing. Watched that a couple of weeks ago. Oh, good. Yeah, I've, I've been meaning to watch it. Very good. Very... Um, very Yeah, really good. Very interesting um, way of doing a film. Highly recommend it. Um, Selma? No, that's not nominated, actually. Oh, OK. Well, double wrong. Tell us. <laughs> so the only one, uh, the nomination this year from a, uh, from a novel is Inherent Vice, which is based on uh, Thomas Pinchon's novel of the same name. The rest of them, stuff like American Sniper, that's on a, based on an autobiography. Um, the Theory of Everything, as you probably know, is based on um, Stephen Hawking's uh, wife's uh, memoir. Of course. Travelling to Infinity, My Life with Stephen. But I, I thought I was a little bit sad when I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, I mean, there's, there's never very many films that come from amazing books. Well, it's not from a book, um, but um, the Grand Bud- Budapest Hotel is fantastic, Wes Anderson, and and uh, and that's you know been receiving lots of awards and plaudits, which I didn't really think it would because I watched it uh, quite a while ago and uh, I loved it. I love Wes Anderson anyway, and um, and and yeah, it was it's it's kind of got the critical acclaim. Absolutely, I mean, I'm not saying there's not amazing films being made. There are absolutely amazing films being made and original films like that, but. If think about all your favourite books, have they been made into films? Not on my. I can't even remember my favourites. Oh, you don't have favourite books, do you? We just found that out. Uh, I treat them, treat them all the same. <laughs> um, I mean, and actually, I think what happens is, is if you do love a book and it's made into a film, then the chances that you're going to love that film are probably pretty slim, anyway, don't you think? If you've already read the book. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, little. Topical, not lovey-dovey, but still topical. There you go. We'll put this link in the show notes. Where are they going to find the show notes, Ian? They're going to find the show notes at WFYL. But before that, you're going to say 5by5.tv slash WFYL slash 148. Hmm. Fantastic. Is it time for a listener's question? Which is not really a question. It's a statement. (laughs) It is. This question comes from friend of the show, Liz Fell. Hi, Liz. Um, host of the Lady Bits podcast, also on 5x5, everybody. This is going to be extremely difficult to translate into a question. I'm just going to read it out. It just says, outlining, all about it. So off you go, Ian. <laughs> well, we have sort of talked about outlining before, probably a number of times in a number of different ways. Um, and, and I've previously said how when, when I outlined my novel, I sort of didn't start doing that until I was quite a way through. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe, maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not the best person to talk about this, but as I'm one of only two people here, maybe I should try. Um, 
I, I, I don't know if there is... Well, first thing, I don't think there is one right way necessarily um, to outline a novel. Now, perhaps before that we need to talk about whether you should outline your... Well, she doesn't even say novel, actually. Let's say book, whether you should outline it. Um, and I think that just depends on entirely who you are and what type of writer you are and, and whatever fits. So I would say give a few techniques a try. One uh, One way of doing things is uh, to use um, uh, something like Scrivener will have like a corkboard view or you could use index cards or post-it notes and then you can stick on those things as much detail as you necessarily want to and um, and then kind of use use the your each card or, or whatever it might be move them around and try and sort of formulate some kind of jigsaw-like plan before you start other people and that's it so you don't do much more outlining that apart from maybe uh, maybe to say right uh, there's going to be 40 different events and here they all uh, here they all are written down and they will more or less stay like that i expect but there is some flexibility because hey who knows what's going to happen another way of outlining uh which I, I is very popular um as far as i know is that is is where you kind of where your first draft is almost entirely note form. So you might, and I think, you didn't you say that you did that, where you kind of outlined your children's book? Yeah, to death. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I was like, oh, I'm just so exhausted from doing that, I can't be bothered to go back and write it again. I will, though, don't worry. Not that you were worried. <laughs> no, but it's where, it's, where, it's where your writing is almost a combination of small notes but then occasionally like some complete sentences. So you're, maybe you're, maybe if you started out, see, I've done this a little bit. I did do this, a, I did do this a little bit once I'd got into, well, once I got to the point where I realised I had to do a bit more planning and outlining, but where I would write a sentence um, and it might be something like, I don't know, Steve decides that he's going to go to the shops today. And that's what that chapter's all about. It's a riveting chapter. Um, and then I would say something like, um, on the way he meets uh, Joyce. And then I might just there, instead of just carrying on in, with that kind of note form style, I might throw in a bit of dialogue just because I know that I want them to say certain things. Or I might actually write a few sentences that are a bit more kind of lyrical. You know, they're a bit more what, I, what it actually might end up being. Um, and, and then you kind of get to the end of a chapter. Um, you've got a load of notes. Those notes might be, like, you know, a few hundred words. Um, and then you move on to the next chapter and you're kind of outlining as you're going. It's kind of a first draft, but it's kind of a load of notes as well. And um, and then the idea is that you don't really worry, you just sort of plough on. I'm, I'm not really... I have done that a bit, like I say, but I don't really feel... I mean, I definitely haven't planned a whole novel like that or outlined a, a whole novel like that. Um, another way is to use a bit of software that's, you know, specific for outlining. I know Omni Outliner is expensive, but apparently very good. But to be honest, I think you could potentially just use bulleted lists in a text editor, maybe maybe even Word, where you kind of just indent. So maybe your maybe your top level bullets are um, sort of chapters. Maybe your sub bullets are individual events that happen within chapters. I mean, you could even do that in Scrivener, I guess, to a degree with um, the um, kind of the the structure of Scrivener, where you have chapters and scenes is is kind of that structure it's just that if you have them in a list which describes you know each bullet point sort of describes what needs to happen in each 
in each um, in each kind of chapter or scene. That's another way of doing it. Um, and um, another method, which isn't really outlining, it's more kind of planning, but I've talked about it before, it's the, the snowflake method. Um, and that's where you, um, you, you start by... I think it, I think it, I don't know why it's called the snowflake method. I guess it's the idea that it starts something that starts off as a snowflake, and if you keep adding more snowflakes, it snowballs, and gets bigger. Um, but the idea is that you start off by trying to sum up your entire novel in one sentence, um, and then when you've done that, you then say, well, "Okay, well, let's have a sentence, and then maybe another sentence." And then you think, well, let's have a paragraph's worth. And then you eventually, you I can't remember how many steps. I'll put a link in the show notes um, to the snowflake method. But um, after a while, you you kind of, you're planning from small to large rather than kind of just saying, hey, here's my fantastic idea. I'm going to write, I'm going to write, I'm going to write. And then kind of really struggling to pin it down and say what it's really about. The idea of saying from the start, this is what the novel needs to be. And always being able to go back to that first sentence just, just to check whether you're whether you're on whether you're on kind of track for that or whether things have changed and then when you see things have changed you can decide whether you wanted them to change whether it was right to change them and and so forth um wow. that's fantastic ian i think that must be one of the most uh um what's the word i'm looking for i can't even speak now um comprehensive answers to our listeners question ever well, I, I, that was all without notes. Totally made it up. Did no preparation. <laughs> <laughs> what about, I put it to you, what about no outlining whatsoever? Well, of course, there's an expression for that. You would be a pantser because you would be writing by the seat of your pants. Really? Yeah. Which, of, of course, is it, it means uh, something different in the UK, of course, pants. Pants are knickers that's probably also something else okay. what's your favorite alternative word for underpants um apple snatchers oh so close mine is apple catchers and i don't really understand why that works but it just works in my head well there we go maybe it's a family thing maybe they, these apple terms are just flying around <laughs> It sounds like it might be, because I think I definitely got that from my wife. Um, <laughs> Who is my descri- sister, everybody, you should know, yes. Indeed, she described um, a pair of pants as, um, uh, I don't know why, but she just got said they were, they were apple catchers when we uh, first met, and that was it, game over. I think it's because back in the day, people wore such big underpants that you could hold them open if you went out into an orchard to pick apples, and you could just catch them all in them. I think it was making a, a distinction between kind of a normal pair of pants and perhaps a thong. It's Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. We can say these things. Valentine's Day. Fantastic. Um, brilliant. I think that's it. Thanks so much, Liz, for your question and for your fantastic contributions to the uh, WFYL hashtag, as always. It's, um, yes, there we go. <sighs> Ian. Yeah? I just thought of something, actually, which links very nicely to that there. That there, what we were just talking about. Uh, do you know much about James Elroy? I don't. I feel like every time we talk about another author, I just haven't got a clue. And what am I? Do- what have I been doing? Okay, I have to say to you, am I confidential? Oh, he's the bad guy. It was the tall one with the nose. No, I still don't know. 
uh, Russell Crowe's in it. He, he was tall. Uh, there's a tall fella, and he had a nose and um, no, little hair and a long coat. And towards the end, he had a gun, and he was older than most people. And <gasps> no, was he, Guy Pearce in it? God, it's such a long time ago. I saw this film. Oh my god. That, that is not that he is, but that is not who I was describing. I am really upset that I can't get who you're describing there. I mean, when he said he was tall and he had a nose, I should have got it straight away. Oh well. Anyway, anyway, James Elroy is an, another prolific American writer, very, very well known over on that side of the pond and on our side of the pond um, for things like *Ellie Confidential* and various other um, crime. Yeah, I mean, I Novel. I should qualify here. I've, like, I know who James Elroy is. I just haven't, like, you know, read much of his work, if or, no. or, or, or any of it. Well, so I, I put my hands up now and say, oh, neither have I. But I'd, I've already said that. Um, but when I was just reading about him earlier, because his comments about no quotation marks in this article, which we'll share in a minute, are quite funny. But um, I I read that um, he has a very very distinct writing style and extremely dense, thick plots. Um, and he prepares elaborate outlines for his books, most of which are several hundred pages long. And I just thought, Phew. yeah, I, it doesn't sound like much fun to me either. I mean, uh, well, maybe it is. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, there's is... just another example of how different authors do it different ways. And my goodness, he is very successful, and he can slog out several hundred page long um, outlines. That is quite amazing, really. I think it's people, people like him and and many other writers just get into like a, a rhythm, yeah. And they just, it's just, it's like a, a it becomes, um, not job like, but um, just entirely natural. Like there's no, there's no, like like, I don't know, like having breakfast, and um, I don't, I, don't, I I've never had that, and it's been one of those. Is I guess we're coming right back to the just write argument, and that writers write. You're a writer, you're a writer. I go, yeah, I've, uh, I've written a novel. It got published in, 20, in 2012. It says, are you writing every day? Uh, not really. I've got, I've got two and a half year old twins. You're not a writer. You writers write. Just write. Writers write. Writers write. So just write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. You better think about that again, have you? About the fact that you've got kids. <laughs> yeah, it's, I just don't know. I think I don't let it bother me. <laughs> um. Well, I'll tell you what, James Elroy is extremely bothered um, by novels that do not use quotation marks, which is very interesting because apparently he has an extremely unique style, a very, very succinct style, and he leaves out all sorts of things, connecting words, and I'm just surprised that an author who, who you know, has, has, has really tweaked that kind of thing would be so against it. Um, and his comments in this article in The Guardian... Um, about Caribou Island by David Van were very interesting. This article is called Caribou Island, where speech marks have gone extinct. Um, and yeah, are you very upset by the idea that um, that books are written without any speech marks or quotation marks? Um, I'm not, but it is it is uh, something that I've thought a lot about in my own writing because it is quite common, especially in literary novels. In fact, it's it's probably primarily in literary novels it's becoming where, more common isn't it i guess as well yeah maybe but it's, it's this idea of i mean the ali smith novel i read recently which is not how to be both which is the one that's nominated and winning prizes it's the other one the that accidental I, um no another one mm-hmm. well maybe it was the accidental it's the one with the guy who locks himself in the room oh has he got a nose 
He's got a nose. He's got a room. There's a chair in the room, and he has. Uh, he's got clothes and uh, people taking food. I'm not going to be able to help you. I've only read The Accidental by Ali Smith. Yeah, Ali Smith's great. I really like Ali Smith. Yeah. Um, so her her book that you can't remember the name of does it yes. also um, not have speech marks? It um, uh, completely omits them. It just does not have any speech marks. It has dialogue, um, but no speech marks. And of course, some people kind of go halfway house, and they might use um, like you know n dashes at the start of uh, not hyphens. Note that I said said that um, at the start of a, uh, a piece of dialogue. So the dialogue is kind of clearly marked, but not in the most conventional way, which of course is to use official speech marks. You know. Um, uh, what on earth are you doing with that cat, comma, speech mark, um, said Steve. So that's the structure of the normal sentence sp- spoken in dialogue. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of authors are not doing that. Now, I don't have any strong feelings about it, but I do wonder what the point is and whether, you know, you know what, what's, the, what's the statement being made by the author? Is, it, is that technique being used for a reason or is it just for uh showing off sake or for or for i don't know i I just i don't know what reason there is to do it necessarily Mm. yeah i mean i in this article there there are writers that that are quoted and and give their reasons why and apparently because I, i mean i guess the argument is is that it can be very difficult for a reader to especially at the start to process okay I'm not really thinking about the story I'm thinking about how I need to interact with this novel rather than engaging with the story but apparently it's very quick that it happens you know most cases if it's written well that you don't really even think about it Um, and there are examples like Cormac McCarthy who Elroy also is has some interesting things to say he said I tried to read a Cormac McCarthy book and thought why does this beep there I did it for you (laughs) use why doesn't he use quotation marks? Yeah, another example is Jonathan Safran Foy ah. in um, 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 the book he wrote called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I'm pretty sure there's none in that too. And it's quite a dense book in lots of ways. My copy has got very small small type and there are, there are no visual clues when as to when people are speaking at all. Yeah. Well, this writer here, E.L. Doctorow, uh, is quoted as saying, I gave up quotation marks long ago. I found I didn't need them. They were fly specks on the page. If you're doing it right, the reader will know who's talking. Maybe, but tell that to the whole canon. I think it's not so much about that you know who's talking or you don't know who's talking, but you don't know which bits of text are when people are talking or when the, the narrator is talking. That's that's what I found the most confusing. I mean, I've read I've read a few Cormac McCarthy books. The Road probably my least favourite of them, but I would say All the Pretty Horses is one of my favourites books. It's, it's absolutely fantastic, and I really didn't mind at all that there were no qu- uh, speech marks, quotation marks at all. No, and um, I've, I've read The Road, and I didn't, that didn't bother me either. I've read lots of books, to be honest, with uh, without uh, quotation marks. I just, I just feel like there needs to be um, uh, a good reason 
to do it and it could be it could be about rhythm it could be a, a rhythm thing because you know when you do put dialogue in to um a piece of work it does you know visually it breaks the page up which is a good thing a lot most of the time um but it does break the flow and the narrative and all that kind of thing up too so it does uh, i mean i guess all i'm saying is don't do it for the sake of doing it and um i toyed with the idea for angelica but i decided quite firmly against it quite quickly because i just thought i i i'm doing this because i think it might be a bit cool yeah not not because it's helping the book in any way yeah well that's i mean it's good that you had that critical discussion with yourself before um another writer benjamin myers is quoted as saying i feel that speech marks are like dead flies on the windscreen of the reader's imagination literary litter he calls them I think you just oh, just give over. Come off, <laughs> c- come off it. I mean, I guess it also depends on how much dialogue you've got in your book. Because I mean, it it would be pretty. Yeah, if there was a lot of dialogue, I think it would really affect it in a different kind of way. A Laura, Laura dialogue. A Laura. Anyway, I guess the the moral of the story is is that if you're going to do it, you have to be absolutely sure that you are spot on with everything else on that book, and that it is not going to affect the reader's experience yeah just make sure that you've thought it through and you the, the the decision is one uh, it's about the book it's about the book it's not about you so it's always about the book yes and it's not about just doing it because other people are doing it which no. was what the decision you took there well there you go um i think we've come to the end of this week's podcast I think so. We've still not talked about Gone Girl or Gone Woman. We've still not uh, heard you read your um, uh, Clive James poem. Oh, my goodness. And I didn't even read any lovey-dovey poems. But I'm not really... Not that I had much desire to read a lovey-dovey poem, but... Oh, well. Here's one. Uh, Roses are red. Violets are blue. I enjoy doing this podcast. Especially with you. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's that's lovely. Thank you. I mean, the truth is no one else has really been interested. <laughs> oh, you did have to say that. Come on. We should have just left it on the nice poem about roses. Um, oh, well. Um, you can find me at The Flying Poet on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Ian Broom on Twitter. And don't forget the podcaster's question. Yes, we're looking forward to hearing from you and also having your ears to listen to our voices next week. Indeed. <laughs> Bye. Bye Bye-bye.